Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. America's latest offensive against Huawei pushes the global semiconductor industry into uncharted territory. These globalized companies, they're going to try and make stuff in these other high-tech hubs that are not America, just so that they can get away from the jurisdiction of the American government. And flattening the other curve. Could fossil fuels be added to COVID's casualty list? A global lockdown is not a permanent solution to climate change. The question is whether any of the behaviors that have been tested in this lockdown will continue after it. But first, how much of a risk does the coronavirus pose to children? As governments debate when and how to reopen schools, it is still unclear to what extent children are catching and spreading the virus without showing symptoms themselves. Now physicians are reporting an apparent spike in a rare childhood illness, Kawasaki disease. Several children have died. These findings suggest the virus may manifest in children with serious and very different symptoms to adults. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. Matt, let's start with this. What is Kawasaki disease? So Kawasaki disease was first diagnosed in Japan in 1967. To this day, it remains poorly understood. What we do know is that children who develop the disease often manifest with body rashes, kind of angry red rashes across their limbs and and torso. They almost always develop a fever, The disease, when it progresses and becomes particularly advanced, can uh, cause cardiac problems. But the thing is, the reason people develop it has never been identified and remains mysterious. And how significant and widespread is the reported surge in cases? The team that really took the bull by the horns on this was an Italian team led by Dr. Lorenzo D'Antigua. He's he's a specialist pediatrician, and he was uh, surprised when, in a matter of just two months, he saw 10 cases at his local hospital in northern Italy. 10 cases doesn't sound like a lot, but he'd previously seen 19 cases of Kawasaki disease at his hospital in five years. Uh, When he looked at Italian records more extensively, he realized that the average of 14 to 15 cases per 100,000 children in Italy had shot up to 440 cases per 100,000 children in Italy in 2020. This was a 30-fold increase in a very short period of time. So he and his colleagues decided to work with these first 10 children that they had coming in through their doors and work them up more closely to see what was going on. 
And are doctors seeing the same trend repeating in other places? So the first folks to register a case were in California. After that got raised, more people in New York noticed it. And as the media has picked up on the fact that this is occurring, other countries, including Spain and Portugal and France and Germany and the UK, and of course Italy, have said, oh, wow, actually, now that we look at our reports, yes, we're seeing uh, market increases in children being registered at the hospital with what looks like Kawasaki disease. Matt, you emphasize it looks like Kawasaki disease. How much is known so far about the connection between COVID-19 and these rare and serious symptoms? The short answer is very, very little. One of the hypotheses we've had for a really long time is that Kawasaki disease is triggered by a virus or a viral infection, and the viral infection goes away, the child's immune system beats it back, and then weeks later, you get these rashes and the fever, and it seems to be mostly caused by the immune system itself behaving badly. Kawasaki disease is almost always seen in very young children, two, three, four years of age, and the average age that we're seeing it in, in Italy at least, where they've, they've started looking at the numbers, is seven and a half compared to three. So already the numbers suggest that something else is going on. The doctors led by Dr. De Antigua in Italy are also noticing that inflamed heart tissue, which is rarer, and it's normally a case of very severe Kawasaki, is proving more common. And of course, the final aspect of all of this is because these children are coming into the hospital with a fever, doctors at hospitals are automatically giving them COVID-19 tests. Most are not testing positive for the disease. However, when doctors test them for COVID-19 antibodies, almost all of them are testing positive, which means the virus has come and gone already. And in a way, that kind of fits into the puzzle of Kawasaki disease, because Kawasaki disease, we think, is the response to a viral infection, but weeks after the infection has passed, this immune response. So what does this mean for both protecting children and controlling the spread of the pandemic going forward? Well, in terms of protecting children, what we're seeing here is a response that's actually, even though these children are not developing the respiratory issues that adults develop, their response in the end actually is mirroring what we see in the absolute most ill adults in the form of a cytokine storm. So a cytokine storm is where the adult's immune system in a very aggressive response ends up causing a lot more damage to the body than the virus itself would cause all on its own. In terms of how we deal with this going forward, I think what's really important to note here is that while we are seeing upticks in this Kawasaki-like disease in all of the countries that are now aware that this is taking place, Overall, the number of children who are actually developing critical conditions from this is exceedingly low. What this is evidence for is that COVID-19 is clearly moving through child populations in relatively large numbers. More work needs to be done, but certainly this suggests that kids are catching it and therefore spreading it, and that if we want to keep the disease controlled, you got to pay attention to where it's going in children. Matt Kaplan, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken. And you can follow our coverage of the latest in scientific understanding of the coronavirus at economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber, go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, information is power. 
the ability to process and store massive amounts of data offers a critical advantage in any rivalry. In the 21st century, that means semiconductors. In 2019, $412 billion worth of computer chips were sold, underpinning trillions of dollars of economic activity. Their strategic importance has pushed the supply chains that make them center stage in the conflict between America and China. On May 15th, America made its latest move. It updated its export control rules to cut off the Chinese telecoms giant Huawei from key links in its supply chain. Here's Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce. There has been a very highly technical loophole through which Huawei has been able, in effect, to use U.S. technology with foreign fab producers. This first rule about foreign direct product is a very highly tailored thing to try to correct that loophole and make sure that the American fab foundries are competing on an equal footing with the foreign ones. Huawei denounced the move, saying its consequences would be ruinous. In the long run, this action, we believe, will damage the trust and collaboration within the global semiconductor industry, upon which many other industries depend. This will lead to increasing conflict and a loss within these industries. The U.S. is leveraging its own technological strengths to crush companies outside its own borders. The latest offensive pushes the world's semiconductor industry into uncharted territory. The first round of this made it illegal for anyone to sell Huawei chips or any other product for that matter that had been made in America. Hal Hodson is our Asia technology correspondent. Chip companies figured out that because they're very, very globalized, it was going to be possible for them to continue selling to Huawei as long as they sold chips that were made outside of the United States. And that made the American government furious because that's not what it had intended. So what's new is that as well as saying it is illegal to sell chips that are made in America to Huawei, it is now also illegal to use tools that are made in America to make chips for Huawei and send them to Huawei, no matter where you are in the world. And the reason that this is such a big deal is that this is directly targeted at the Taiwanese Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, or TSMC, which is the world's most advanced factory for chips and one of Huawei's biggest clients. Now, how damaging is this to Huawei? Could it actually be fatal? See, this really depends. It depends if you're reading the press release that came from the Department of Commerce and the statements from US government officials, or if you're actually reading the regulations. Swades of export control lawyers in DC have effectively read the rules and say that because of the way those supply chains work, the rule probably won't end up applying to Huawei as it's written right now. However, the intent of the American government was clearly to cut Huawei off from TSMC. While that might not have been fatal, there are always workarounds and hacks that would allow Huawei to build sort of less good products. It will really damage Huawei if the regulations are enforced as the American government 
thinks that it has designed them to be. Now let's look at Huawei and its response. What do you expect from them? How are they going to have to change their operations? So one thing that Huawei will definitely do, assuming that the rule remains as it is written, remember that Huawei doesn't actually make its own phones. Huawei just designs them and assures that they're of high quality, just like Apple. Apple uses the same contract manufacturers, companies like Foxconn and Flex, a Taiwanese and Singaporean company. And so Huawei needs to make sure that the products in those supply chains never cross the threshold of a Huawei establishment. Because um, as soon as they do, that transfer of technology becomes illegal. But they're lucky because the way that the industry works is that that tends not to happen. What will become difficult is quality assurance because Huawei won't be allowed to take possession of their own phones out of their contract manufacturer's supply chains because as soon as they do, that will make the transfer of technology from TSMC or whoever else illegal. So as a good globalist, I have to say, this is madness. What in the world is the US thinking? Why are they doing this? Yeah, it's a little weird, isn't it? It's kind of another one of the problems is that if you ask five American officials what they're trying to do, you'll get five different answers. Uh, William Barr, the attorney general, has basically said that America needs to blunt the cutting edge of Huawei's technological advance, which currently puts it ahead of America in terms of things like 5G, which which worries the American government because it's it's worried that the Chinese government will use that technological advantage to its advantage, both economically, you know, taking more than its fair share of the flows of money that go through 5G networks in future, and in terms of security, that the Chinese government will leverage Huawei's dominant market position to do bad things like, you know, threaten to shut down the phone network of a country that isn't behaving as China wants it to. And so that's why America is doing this. The problem is that it doesn't really seem as though the American officials who are putting these things into place understand either the rules they're using or the supply chains that they're applying the rules to. So it's a bit of a mess. And at the moment, there aren't many companies that have the equipment to build high-end semiconductors. It's pretty hard to imagine building them without American ingredients. And so looking longer term, is this going to reshape the whole industry? Yeah, so it's going to be slow, right? Uh, I mean, a couple of the folks I talked to made the point that it would be far, far riskier for TSMC to rip out all the American tools in its supply chain just so that it could keep supplying Huawei than it would to actually just stop supplying Huawei because those factories are so expensive that the, the latest one that TSMC built cost $18 billion to, to build. So you need to sweat that asset just constantly and any amount of time spent swapping out equipment is, is just a huge, huge risk. You're burning money. But what's likely is that the toolmakers that have significant American operations are going to effectively try and de-Americanize their supply chains over time because the American government's actions against Huawei have created this huge risk that if you have a business that wants to grow into the Chinese market, you might all of a sudden wake up one day and find out that the American government has deemed your last five years of sales to be illegal. That's a very difficult uncertainty to deal with as a business. So instead of making stuff in America, increasingly these globalized companies, they're going to try and make stuff in Europe and in Japan, in Singapore, Malaysia, in these other high tech hubs that are not America, just so that they can get away from the jurisdiction of the American government.
So does this risk slowing down technological progress itself? I think it does. And the reason that it does is because it imposes higher costs on all of the transactions in this important industry, which is making semiconductors. Higher costs and higher risks. Even though America doesn't like Huawei for, you know, some fairly legitimate reasons, Huawei does sell the lowest cost connectivity equipment and enables high tech internet services and activities. We don't yet know exactly what kinds of things will be built with 5G. Potentially things like driverless cars might need to use it. And so the, the more cost is put on each step of that technological development, the slower that that particular future will arrive. But as important as how fast technology is progressing is kind of who's in control of it. And that's what's at dispute here. Hal Hudson, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Ken. And how we'll be back alongside our correspondents in America for a deeper dive into the politics of the chip wars on Friday. Tune in to Checks and Balance, our weekly podcast on American politics to hear them. That's Checks and Balance, out Friday, May 22nd on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business... To a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally... Amid the destruction of COVID-19, there has been one bright spot. Fossil fuel emissions are plunging. A study published in Nature Climate Change found that global carbon dioxide emissions in April fell by 17% compared with 12 months earlier. This drop has come at a terrible cost. But as economies start to reopen, could there be a window of opportunity here for a greener return to growth? By the end of the year, it could be that carbon dioxide emissions fall by 6% or 7%, which would be an absolutely historic drop. Charlotte Howard is our energy and commodities editor. For years, people have debated when fossil fuel demand might peak. That debate is so contentious that a lot of forecasters don't even give a straight answer. The question now is whether the combination of COVID's historic shock to the energy system and the fact that that energy system was already in the throes of dramatic change away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy, now together bring that peak for fossil fuel demand closer. So what do past crises tell us? Can economic growth resume without a big jump in emissions? It never has before. So if you look at past crises, the Great Recession, the Asian financial crisis in the 1990s, even further back looking to the Arab oil crisis, the fall of the Soviet Union, those brought a temporary reprieve from the steady climb in emissions. But soon after that, there was a big jump um, that was particularly apparent in 2010. And so the question now is whether there's something different about this crisis and about the energy system in 2020 that means that the reaction this time might look different. Well, let's explore that. Is this crisis different? There absolutely is some reason for optimism because COVID-19 has dealt a historic shock to the energy system. Oil demand in April 
plunged by an order of magnitude larger than anything we've ever seen in history. Coal, which remains the dirtiest form of fossil fuels, has also been battered by this because there's been a drop in electricity demand and renewables have held up quite well because the cost of producing electricity from the sun and wind is very low. Um, The sun will shine for free, so the marginal cost is low and coal plants are being squeezed out. And then combined with that, you have this experiment happening on a global stage in how much behavior change can limit emissions. And a global lockdown is not a permanent solution to climate change. The question is whether any of the behaviors that have been tested in this lockdown will continue after it. And so what do you think? I mean, could there be a longer term impact on the demand for oil and coal? There absolutely could be, for instance, commuting. If more people work from home because they realize actually they can get a lot done, then you have a knock-on effect through the oil system. So you might not only have fewer people driving into work, you also then have less congestion on the roads, which leads to less use of oil in that way. You might have um, people buying fewer tires, which lowers demand for a certain type of petrochemical made in tires. You can kind of see your mind going through these different scenarios. Jet travel is a big one which has been severely impacted by this, you could see a long-term decline in business travel. The trouble is there are forces that do pull the other direction. So if people are less interested in taking public transport, you've already seen trends to that effect in China where oil is bouncing back more quickly than expected because people don't want to get on buses, they don't want to get on trains. So it's not absolutely clear that this will lead to a permanent shift, at least not yet. And what about the situation with renewables? Has that changed compared to past crises and recoveries? Could they now be in a position to compete? 2010, which is when we last had a downturn in emissions, is pretty informative as um, a point of difference. In 2010, compared with today, the solar industry, of course, existed, but it was far more nascent. In the past decade, you've seen this absolutely astonishing decline in the cost of renewable technologies, solar more than 85%, onshore wind falling by about half, battery costs also have dropped steeply. The electric vehicle industry is in a much different place now than it was before. Also, after 2010, part of the reason there was a big uptick in emissions is because Asian economies, in particular China, really helped boost demand for coal. But renewables within China and globally are in a much different place now than they were a decade ago. Okay, so there's a lot of uncertainty here. Who does it rest on? Is it down to governments or investors and businesses to take the lead? So on the private sector side, capital was already fleeing away from coal and oil. Investors had decided that returns from the really big oil companies and smaller American shale companies looked incredibly unattractive. The long-term outlook, which was already uncertain, now looks even more so. And so there's a big possibility that COVID accelerates this flight away from fossil fuels by the investor community. And renewables, in contrast, have held up rather well. So big renewable developers like Ibidrola has a market cap that is getting close to that of BP. So you do see this shift on the private side. On the government side, though, the question is how much governments will help to accelerate that, because there's not yet indication that what's happening both by individuals, companies, and by investors will be enough to move the world more securely towards that 1.5 or even 2 degree scenario. Charlotte, before I let you go, 
Tell me, are you optimistic that we're going to stay on this positive trend, or do you think the world is going to go back to being a guzzler of fossil fuels? I am optimistic that there are changes underway that are more promising than anything we've seen for a very long time. The problem is they're not with a certainty that is enough. And there's this sense that governments are meddling in energy markets. But the truth is that governments already help direct investments for about 70% of the world's energy investments. That's from the International Energy Agency. And the question now is whether they decide to make investments, they decide to pass stimulus packages that further accelerate this shift to make sure that this time around, the recovery can promote growth without seeing us take a step backwards in our efforts to limit climate change. Okay, so it remains to be seen whether peak carbon could be a silver lining amid the heavy clouds of today. Charlotte Howard, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in my linen closet in West London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.